We have seen some studies previously that have looked at the water that is consumed to produce our food, but we're taking this a little step further and, and looking more carefully at what the impact of that water use is. So why did we take it this direction? Well, yes, there's been a lot of attention on carbon footprint, but of course, that's a super critical issue and one that's, that is, from my perspective, e extremely urgent. But it's certainly not the only place that our diet influences the environment. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for giving the show a listen, or a view, or a download, wherever it is in the world that you are. We appreciate you raising your health IQ with us. This is episode 32 for season 4, number 227 overall. With Earth Day nearly upon us, today's show will have an environmental focus. And we are going to learn how your diet is impacting the Earth. Specifically, we are going to be examining the amount of water that it takes to produce some of your favorite foods. Dr. Martin Heller is kind enough to join us back here on the exam room to talk about his brand new study outlining diets and water scarcity. He and his team of researchers went through and painstakingly calculated the amount of fresh water required to make a bunch of different foods. Everything from meat and dairy to fruits and vegetables, grains, nuts, legumes, all kinds of food, even beverages were accounted for in this study. So today, we're not just raising health IQs, we're raising environmental health IQs. But before we get into any of that, before we tackle the study, I want to let you know that this episode of The Exam Room is brought to you by Kinder Beauty, 100% vegan and cruelty-free beauty subscription box. Each monthly box contains more than $85 worth of beauty and self-care products that are kind to your skin, kind to the planet, and kind to the animals. Best of all, Physicians Committee has been named one of Kinder Beauty's charity partners, which means a portion of their beauty box sales helps to support our work. And you can learn more about this great company by visiting kinderbeauty.com. Time now to dive into your diet and how much water it took to make the food that is sitting in your refrigerator right now. Today, we're going to be talking about how the food on your plate affects water scarcity. What are the foods that really contribute to water scarcity and what is water scarcity and how does that compare to carbon footprints? Well, there is a brand new study out that looks at all of that so comprehensively and I'm so excited to be joined by one of the study's lead authors here, Dr. Martin Heller. He is the Senior Research Specialist with the Center for Sustainable Systems at the University of Michigan's School for Environment and Sustainability. That is a mouthful, but you are so worthy of the title. Dr. Heller, welcome to the show. Chuck, great to be here. It's great to have you back. Congratulations on this study. This is, a, I want to call it kind of a first of its kind because we see so many 
making the connection now between uh, diet and and how we eat and carbon footprints. But this is really taking a different direction and looking specifically at water scarcity. Why did you decide to go in this direction? Yeah, that that that's right. And 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 you know, truth be told, we have seen some studies um, previously that have looked at the water that is consumed as, um, to produce our food, that, that, that is consumed in producing our diet. Um, but we're taking this a little step further and, and looking um, more carefully at what the impact of that water use is. So why did we take it this direction? Well, you know, yes, there's been a lot of attention on carbon footprint, but of course, um, and, you know, that's a super critical issue and one that's, that is from my perspective, extremely urgent, um, but it's certainly not the only place that um, that food production, that you know, our diet influences the environment. I mean, if we look at some of these other pieces, irrigated agriculture represents eighty to ninety percent of the global freshwater consumption. So, you know, if we're looking at places around the globe where um, where water availability is scarce, uh, where, you know, people are running into the situation where they do not have access for, to fresh water to drink or to bathe or any of the other things that we do. Um, you know, looking at agriculture certainly is an important part of that. And um, yes, there are improvements we can make in the way that we produce our food, but as it turns out, there also are differences, as we've seen with looking at carbon footprint, in the the water use associated with different foods. So shifts in our diet can also influence that. Well, let's define what water scarcity is for this particular study. So how would you define that to somebody who's not yet familiar with it? Yeah, so I mean, the idea really here has come out of uh, the, a recognition that um, unlike greenhouse gas emissions, where it's largely a global problem, right? It, the impact happens at a global level. It doesn't really matter if the emissions occur in the U.S. or they occur, occur in China. It kind of all contributes to the same impact. When we're looking at some of these other issues, however, water, the impact of water use is, is really very local. You know, I mean, we use up all the water in a particular region. It doesn't really matter if there's fresh water on the other side of the globe. We don't have access to it. So this idea of water scarcity is is recognizing that the impact of water use is dependent on where you use it, right? So water use in Wisconsin doesn't look the same as water use in California because of the scarcity of the water resource. So um, lots of smart folks have been thinking about this. How do we develop metrics that reflect that? You know, if we're starting to look at water use associated with different products, simply adding that water use up across different production regions when we're talking about food, maybe doesn't make sense because we're not really adding apples to apples. The, the impacts of those are different. So, um, you know, folks look at, at, uh, different methods of, of developing an indicator for that. And, and the one that we've used is called AWARE. It's a characterization method that the acronym, acronym stands for Available Water Remaining. So basically, we're looking at the potential for water uh, deprivation for, for you know, the, 
to not have access to fresh water among both humans and ecosystems. We have to remember that there's a lot of other creatures on the planet that are also dependent on that fresh water. Um, and we're looking at that by considering the difference between availability and demand in a given region. I mean, it's really, it's it, at the most basic level, it's that simple. We've, we've got a certain amount of water available through, um, you know, through precipitation and uh, groundwater sources, uh, or, you know, surface, surface water sources, lakes and rivers. And there's also a certain amount of demand in that region from agriculture, from uh, cities and other other industrial uses and demand from the ecosystem. So the idea of scarcity is really looking at the difference between those and what's remaining um, gives us a sense of how scarce the water is in that region. And what regions are really feeling this strain of um, a lack of, of fresh water resources here? Where, where in the country would you say things are worse right now? Yeah, I mean, in the U.S., certainly, you know, the, the story that we hear about um, all the time is, is California Central Valley, where a lot of our, our um, especially our fruits and vegetables and um, specialty crops like nuts are, are grown. Um, so, you know, that's a, that's a very important one. And, you know, if we look at uh, irrigation use in the U.S., I mean, the, the numbers are pretty staggering, really. So um, the, the daily usage of water in the U.S. for irrigation is 73 billion gallons. That's B, billion with a B, um, you know, trying to put that into something that we can comprehend is tricky, but it seems like the Olympic size swimming pool is the one that everyone references, right? So that's 100, 110,000 Olympic size swimming pools of water consumed every day to irrigate um, crops in the US. And 81% of that, so the vast majority of that happens in the 17 countries on the Western half uh, uh, of the continent. So you know, west of that line from the Dakotas down to Texas. And, and you know, the, the scarcity often gets worse in California and Arizona um, just because of, again, uh, largely because of uh, access and high demands. So we've talked a lot. Uh, well, you, you've mentioned plant foods there uh, so far, but I'm curious how meat factors into that. We hear a lot of times when we talk about these environmental studies that meat is a big time contributor, a huge offender here. What did you see in your study as far as water scarcity and the connection with meat? Right. Well, um, so again, when we're thinking about the water footprint of animal-based foods, really what we're looking at is uh, the agricultural production of of the feeds that go to the animals and irrigation of those. I mean, you know, ideally we could consider other things like the water that the animals drink. Um, but in most places, the uh, studies that have actually looked at that have found it to be so um, insignificant. So um, largely to keep things a little cleaner in this study, we focus solely on this, the irrigation for um that, that is used in producing agricultural crops. Um, but, you know, that, that adds up when we're talking about, uh, about feeding a, a beef uh, cow through its lifetime, uh, maintaining the, the, the beef herd that then supports um, producing the animal that gets harvested. 
Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it, it all kind of translates through those, those feed efficiency um, conversions, how much feed we need to um, offer an animal in order to get um, food out of it that, that we as humans can consume. Um, and, and those things add up here as well in water use. I mean, the one place where there's a, a difference, of course, is when we're looking at carbon footprint, those ruminant animals like, um, like beef and, and uh, dairy cows um, have an additional con contribution, which is the, the methane from enteric digestion. We've talked about this in the past. You know, this is the, the, the cow burps that, that add to the carbon footprint. We don't really have that added um, tie-in, but uh, but still producing all that feed um, adds up. It turns out they're not the the highest um, water-consuming uh, things on our plate from sort of a, a the, the the amount of water scarcity required per. Uh, per like kilogram of, of food provided. Um, when we look at some of the nuts uh, that both require a lot of water and also occur in, are, are predominantly grown in water scarce regions in the U.S., um, those footprints are are considerably higher than than um, than beef even. You talked about uh, nuts here. I think we hear so much about almonds. Are there other nuts that require more water than others? Yeah, and almonds is up there. And again, you know, so we're looking at this this combined um, metric when when we're talking about this. So uh, it's it's not only the water that's required per kilogram of nut that we get out, but then we're also adding this this additional factor, this characterization factor, um, essentially a multiplicative factor uh, in there that, that reflects this, the scarcity of the, the water where that production is occurring. Um, and we did that analysis at a, at a watershed level, so at a fairly regional level, um, but then because we're connecting it to information about the uh, information about the diet that doesn't have any information in it about the provenance of food, where the foods actually produced, we have to kind of re-aggregate everything up to a national average. So when we talk about these, there are there certainly are regional differences, and you know those are are definitely interesting. And unfortunately, not really something that we are able to properly explore in this study. Um, but so we're we're kind of talking about when we look at sort of the national average of these foods uh, from what's available in the U.S. Um, that's what we're talking about. So yeah, almonds are a big one, but uh, walnuts actually uh, show up as higher uh, than almonds in, in this water scarcity intensity. So the amount of water scarcity per kilogram of, of those foods produced. Um, cashews is also a high one. Uh, those, of course, are, are largely imported into the U.S., and we get most of our cashews from Brazil, but uh, also, um, from what I understand, require a, a fair bit of water. Um, pecans are, are sort of on the, the medium size. Then we look at, uh, like, peanuts or, you know, some of the seeds, sunflower seeds or pumpkin seeds, um, those all have uh, 
relatively low water footprint. So that that's a, that's an interesting um, uh, swap to think about. You know, swapping out some of these uh, high water impact uh, nuts for things like uh, peanuts and seeds. Yeah, and and the peanuts they are grown in abundance where I'm from in the tidewater region of Virginia, uh, which is uh, southeastern part of Virginia, right along that North Carolina border. And that is definitely not a dry area of this country. I mean, it is humid, it is swampy, and it is actually prone to flooding. Mm-hmm. Um, so you talked about just general water availability in, in this study. So. The fact that water is so abundantly available in that region, is that part of why peanuts rank lower uh, in the study than almonds, cashews, walnuts? Yeah, I mean, it's an, it's an interesting thing because these two pieces often go, go together, right? The, the irrigation requirement is typically higher when things are grown in regions that don't get a lot of natural precipitation. So, uh and also we, we get a less, less of a sort of multiplicative um, uh, addition when, when the water scarcity is not as great. I mean, I, I suppose it's, it's possible for those human regions to uh, also be water scarce if there were, um, you know, an extreme demand on, on the water use in, in those regions. And so you know there is some some variability and and some some interest in in the data it's it's not a direct correlation but but oftentimes those two pieces go go together go hand in hand I want to get back to meat in just a little bit, but I feel like as long as we're talking about plant foods, we should uh, pivot on over to fruits and vegetables at this point. I'm assuming just like with nuts, uh, you've probably found that certain fruits, certain vegetables rank higher than others in your study as well. Yeah, that's right. You know, so um, I mean, one one thing we're doing here is looking at sort of the relative differences between different foods, but we're also then looking at how those foods show up in our diet, right? And and this is a study where we're we're utilizing, um, as we did with the carbon footprint study, utilizing um, a, a survey based uh, data set. Uh, the NHANES data set, which is National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey. Um, That's an ongoing survey that that asks people across the U.S. what they ate. Uh, And you do that with with enough, you know, you do that with enough people and you can offer a statistically significant sample of the U.S. that the chunk that we looked at is some 17,000 individuals. So uh, we're we're also looking at how you know all of those individual diets uh, rank and and getting a sense of which foods um, cause a particular diet to end up on the higher end of those ranks and you know what 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 do the foods look like that are at the lower end of those ranks um, so you know there's a couple different ways to slice it but some of the things that that um, that Put you in kind of the well, the fruits and vegetables that put you in into the higher ranks. Um, one of the standouts is asparagus. It turns out that the the vast majority of the asparagus that we consume in the U.S. is actually imported. I mean, we, we produce a bit, um, but 
it, it, it seems that our, our consumption has, has outpaced our production quite a bit. Um, and uh, at least uh, as reflected in, in our data, um, the asparagus that is causing the, the water impact here is, is primarily coming from Mexico. Uh, we get asparagus from Mexico and Peru, and uh, those are the, the bigger producers. So asparagus is kind of a, the, the standout um, vegetable. Uh, things like broccoli and cauliflower have a little bit, a, a little beyond the, the average um, water scarcity footprint. Um, if we're looking at, uh, at fruits, um, you know, some of the impact gets concentrated when we looking when we look at things like juices, just because it requires more oranges to get a, a kilogram of orange juice. Um, so, orange juice, lemon juice are standout. Um, avocados has a fairly, um, you know, notable water scarcity footprint relative to to others. Again, you know, I think a lot of the nuance in all of this really comes out with trying to figure out how um, how we make those comparisons and perhaps thinking about it rather from the standpoint of, oh my gosh, I you know, here's this big impact food, I need to get it out of my diet. Well, maybe not. Maybe we need to, you know, think more about, well, what what benefits is that supplying in my diet? And um, is it worth that that cost, you know, and we can think about budgeting our our water footprint much as we would um, our you know do an economic budget with our with our diet and um, pay attention to the the foods that are uh, important, uh, you know, not only for uh, for our, our taste and enjoyment but also for for our health, right? Absolutely. And how many foods did you look at? Uh, was it close to two hundred overall for this paper? Or was it more? Yeah, it's in that order. Um, yes. Yeah, I mean that's a that's a lot of food that you guys were looking at, and and the point that you raised with the lemon juice and the orange juice, I think that that that's a fantastic point because you're absolutely right. It would probably take a dozen oranges to get you a glass of orange juice versus just eating one orange, in which case you're looking at two totally different effects there on water scarcity. Excellent point. Yeah, yeah, and you know, I mean, there's there's some tricks in, in making those comparisons, right? Because, uh, again, we're, we're, we're sort of, and just in, in the data that I'm looking at, we're, we're comparing them just on sort of a, a weight basis. So, you know, you could slice that, uh, different ways and think about, uh, nutritional contributions or, or thinking about, uh, you know, on the basis of some serving size or whatever. Um, you know, so all of that kind of, you know, comes in or, or I would say makes some of the interpretation and, and really understanding what's underneath it a little more complicated. Um, well, yeah, I got you. Uh, it, it, it is, it's a, it, it's a complex topic. Uh, one that you just can't be just talked about simply. I mean, there's, you've used the word nuance a number of times. And I think that there are so many of those that, that go into a particular paper or a study such as this. There's just so many intricacies that go into it. And it's really hard to compare apples to apples or apples to oranges or apples yeah. to beef and something like this. So uh, how long did you uh, spend uh, putting this, this paper together, doing the research for this? 
Yeah, this one has kind of been, um, it's kind of been trudging along for a while. I mean, a, a lot of the, the methods that we're using here were, were somewhat new to us. They're, they're somewhat new to the field, really. The, um, you know, so it took a good bit just really understanding um, what these water scarcity indicators were telling us, how we go about interpreting them, how, how to best apply them, uh, you know, how to, uh, you know, where to, to gather the, the best data. I mean, one challenge within all of this, quite frankly, is that we don't have great data on, on some of these water use pieces. I mean, you know, you might think that, oh, well, we just have, you know, we know what um, John Farmer down the road uh, put on, on his field to irrigate. Um, that's true for a few crops, but you know, at the the level and at the detail that we were interested in getting in here, um, those sort of survey-based uh, data on on water use and agricultural production uh, don't really exist. So the data set that we're relying on um, actually is a, a a modeled data set. It's modeling evapotranspiration. Um, so what and and looking at what a crop would require in order to um, not be water stressed in a given climate with with its given precipitation and temperature and all all of the other factors that influence that. Uh, and then there's a few other pieces that come along with that, uh, a, a, a measure of the, uh, the likelihood of irrigation happening in that particular region. Um, and, and to be to be frank, some of that data is is um, getting on the old side. It, um, so there's there's a need of of refreshing and um, and refining that really to to get into some of this. Um, but again, you know, coming back to the the nuance that you mentioned, you know, when we look at the carbon footprint of our diet, the story's pretty clear. You know, I'm so much of the of the greenhouse gas emissions associated with the U.S. diet uh, come in our consum consumption of animal-based foods. So, um, at the at the average of the U.S. diet, 56% of the carbon footprints from meat, and 45% of the carbon footprint is from beef. Uh, you know, so that that's the 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 lion's share when we're looking at at the the water scarcity footprint, however, those numbers drop a little bit. Um, the meats are 30%, beefs um, 23%, so still most of meat, but, uh, but you know, not as dominant as we see in the greenhouse gas emissions. Um, and then others that we've talked about, fruits, vegetables, you know, fruits are contributing upwards of 20% of the water scarcity footprint at the, the average for the U.S. diet vegetables 12%, nuts and seeds um, 7%. So, you know, it's it's not as clear cut as a, of a story. And um, and I think that that's where, uh, where really it, we need more of a interdisciplinary conversation about um, how we, we, we think about budgeting um, some of, of, of these resources, you know, what, what makes sense? How, how should we think about shifting our diet um, in ways that uh, can not only uh, benefit our health, but uh, reduce uh, some of these 
environmental resources, environmental resource use to a level that that is sustainable. There is so much that goes into this. But before we go any further, I want to remind our animal-loving listeners that this episode is brought to you by Kinder Beauty. Visit KinderBeauty.com to learn more about their cruelty-free Beauty Box subscription service. Now, to that end, if you are an animal lover and you're listening to this show, I'd say that there's about a 99.9% chance that you're already eating a plant-based diet. But Dr. Heller, we've talked about the fruits and the vegetables that are on the higher end of the spectrum. But which ones have a lower impact for those who are interested in budgeting their diet for water, as you suggest? From my perspective, I think the important thing to remember here is that, um, again, so much of this water use and the impact of the water use is regionally dependent. So um, one thing that would be interesting to do with uh, with this, uh, which we weren't able to do be- because of some of the, the limitations in the data that we were working with, but it'd be interesting to look at what could, could we reduce the overall water scarcity footprint of the, the U.S. population if we were to eat more um, regionalized diets? Um, yes, that would probably mean, mean greater scarcity for um, some folks that live in particularly water-scarce regions, um, but it is that counterbalanced by a reduction in that water scarcity if uh, those of us that live in in you know in the Midwest in uh, in the East um, were able to eat more of a, a regionalized diet um, and rely less on food that's that's trucked from. Um, from the Central Valley of California or from Arizona or, you know, Mexico for that matter. So, you know, I mean, the, the asparagus one is a, is a really interesting example. Um, it shows up at this, as this high uh, water footprint. We kind of dug into that. Why, why, what, you know, like I live in Michigan. We grow a lot of asparagus in Michigan and most of it isn't irrigated. You know, it's a spring crop. There's plenty of water around when, when that is um, popping out of the ground um, but, you know, most of that uh, footprint is happening from asparagus grown in Mexico, and that asparagus is produced to fill in the gaps, I think, in uh, where some of the regional production isn't, um, is, is no longer available. So in that case, you know, one um, really obvious solution is to return to more of a, a seasonal eating. Asparagus is great when when it's local and around, um, but do we need to eat asparagus 12 months out of the year? That's, you know, I guess that's, that, that's something for discussion. Well, I can't speak for everybody, but I've never had asparagus at my holiday table, so I think that there's something to be said for a springtime asparagus feast. Yes. <laughs> um, let's... Well, here's the question, right? So what if we took that local philosophy there and really made it a hyper-local philosophy and we just kind of went all in here and people really took to trying to grow their own food in in a garden, whether it's in their backyard or a neighborhood garden and really hyper-localized food growth. Do you think that that would have a positive impact here? 
I, I, I do personally. Yes, I think so. Um, and we grow a fair bit in, in, in my backyard here in Michigan. Unfortunately, it's tricky to do that when my backyard is mostly white. Um, you know, when, when it's under snow, uh, I, I live in Northwest Michigan and, and we usually get a good bit of snow. So, um, you know, that's, that's, that, that's a challenge. Um, so, you know, again, uh, our, you know, our, our ancestors managed to do that. They managed to store up enough stuff somehow. Um, uh, I'm not certain if the the nutritionists in your audience would think that that would be such a great idea to return to a time when we're no longer eating fresh fruits and vegetables. Um, but, you know, I'm not sure if that level of um, of extreme thinking is is necessary. I mean, it's certainly fun to think about. And, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm all for um, people growing their own food, um, you know, perhaps for these environmental regions, reasons, but uh, more importantly, I think, because it just gets you so much more connected with where your food is coming from, um, what it means to actually, uh, you know, grow a leaf of spinach that goes into your salad. You know, what does it take? What does it look like? Um, you know, it, it gives me a great um, deal of appreciation and, and, and joy to then eat that salad, that spinach salad that, you know, came out of the hoop house that's been um, growing all winter here in, in Northwest Michigan. You do grow. I mean, you're throwing around the term hoop house. That, that doesn't get <laughs> tossed around all that often here. Um, I want to really quickly uh, shift back to meat as well. So beef we know is the biggest offender in terms of water scarcity, uh, matching its effect on, uh, in terms of ranking anyway, the same with carbon footprint, as you said. Um, but what about the other meats? How do they kind of stack out here, whether it's chicken or pork, um, anything along those lines, where do they rank uh, in terms of water scarcity? Yeah, I mean they're they're a bit lower, and um, again, you know this this all kind of reflects uh, both on this uh, feed to food conversion efficiency of the of the different livestock species, uh, as well as the types of um, feed types of feed that they need to be healthy. So, you know, chicken, pork, turkey are on the lower side. Actually, you know, again, I'm. I'm looking at a figure that, that we have in the paper that kind of compares some of these um, different uh, protein sources. Um, and, you know, again, so, uh, you know, beef is, is notably lower than some of the nuts that we talked about before. Uh, but those other meats are um, sort of along the same lines as some of the, the other um, plant-based foods plant-based protein sources that we might consider. So soybean and, and dry beans. Um, so, you know, again, I, there's, there's a, it, it's not nearly a, as um, clear of a, a, of a dividing line as we see in carbon footprint. I think it's a, a, a story that I keep coming back to, but um, you know, it's, it's certainly, um, very apparent in in all of this data that uh, that there's there's a little more wiggle room um, when we're looking specifically at, at water scarcity. I mean, I think there's some some really interesting questions yet to examine of 
what happens when we bring a number of these indicators together, carbon footprint, water, uh, you know, land use is, is probably the other big one that needs to be considered that, that kind of plays into all of those. And then, you know, pull in, in some sort of health nutritional component as well. Um, you know, when we start optimizing um, all of those, where, where does it land? Um, so the first step is, is understanding each of these um, individually. And, you know, then we can start uh, working with um, thinking about them in combination. Um, you know, and, as you mentioned, I mean, there, there tends to be some um, coordination with those. Uh, beef is an important one in the U.S. diet just because we consume so darn much of it. Um, so that is why it is a standout contributor here. Um, and again, that, that, does, that reflects partly that it has a, a, a higher um, water scarcity intensity, but um, more so in this case that, that we consume a lot of it. Whereas the you know chicken and pork, uh, it's a little bit less. We did some just really um, quick uh, back of the envelope uh, estimates of okay, if if I were in the the higher part of the population, if if I'm eating a diet that puts me into the fifth quintile of this water scarcity footprint, and um, you know we're ranking all these diets, if I'm eating a diet that puts me into the higher level and I swap out 100 grams of beef in my diet for 100 grams of chicken, how does that influence my water scarcity footprint? Well, that trade out for 100 grams of beef um, for 100 grams of, or with 100 grams of chicken reduces my water scarcity footprint by 16%. You know, and that's just swapping out those two meats. Um, interestingly, if I swapped out 100 grams of asparagus with 100 grams of Brussels sprouts, it would reduce the water scarcity footprint of those same folks in the fifth quintile by 45%. You know, obviously, when we're doing these um, replacements, it, the important thing is how far apart those two are, what the differential is. And, um, you know, beef and chicken are actually closer together than asparagus and, and Brussels sprouts are. That is fascinating. Uh, the head-to-head -head comparison. I mean, despite the fact that there are so many intricacies, so many nuances here, so many little things that go into this big study that you guys conducted, uh, you're still able to do these kinds of comparisons as best as you can. So, uh, you know, I, for one, am grateful that you were able to put this out. And I guess my final question to you is this. There is indeed so much that goes into this. But if you factor in everything here for water scarcity, you look at the carbon footprint, you factor in our own health, uh, all, all of the above, uh, so many people who are listening to this would make the argument still that a plant-based diet would probably be the healthiest uh, overall. Um, in your estimation as somebody who's so well steeped in this uh, type of science, what would you say to that notion? Yeah, I, I think that by and large, um, that is going to hold true uh, with environmental impact as well. At, at least that's that's the the easiest and and most obvious um, distinction to make, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, I'm again. While we have some foods in that that plant based group that that have some higher impact, 
it, you know, I, I'm not sure. Again, I, I don't know if the really the way that we approach that needs to be. We need to eliminate almonds from our diet. That's probably not a great idea. I mean, they're they're an excellent protein source. Um, you know, my kids will actually eat them. Um, <laughs> so, you know, maybe that's, maybe that's just one of those places where, okay, I'm going to spend a bit of my budget on this food because it's good for me and I like it. Um, you know, and, and maybe that means that I cut down on, on my, I mean, if I'm cutting down on my animal based food consumption, then, you know, it opens up a, perhaps a lot of room within that water budget. Um, to to continue to eat some of those um, those foods that maybe have a little bit uh, higher intensity, and from a carbon footprint standpoint, um, you know most of those crops do fairly well. Also, so you know this is this is a, a never ending challenge um, when we look at environmental impact. We know that there's a broad um, a broad range of different um, impact categories that we can look at different places where where um the the choices that we make the way that we produce things uh influence the environment it's uh it unfortunately it's it's largely a, a subjective um decision in determining which ones of those are the most important um you know for society for the environment uh it's it's not an easy thing it, it's certainly something that we wrestle with a lot um, in thinking about, okay, is it more important to reduce my carbon footprint or my water scarcity footprint? Which, which one, you know, what, how do I weigh those two? Um, you know, ultimately that's a decision we have to make at sort of a societal level and in, in thinking about where we prioritize some of those pieces. Um, but, you know, I guess where I'm, where I'm going is it may not be something you know, some of those finer slices may not be worth losing sleep over, you know, let, let's not stress ourselves out about this stuff to the point where we're no longer enjoying um, eating food. You know, I think it's like so many of our, uh, of the, the things we, we struggle with on a daily basis, like a first step is just becoming aware of it, right? Being, recognizing what, what the influence, what the impacts are, um, and, and then finding ways to adopt that into our lifestyles. Ooh, there is a, a lot of layers to that onion, my friend. Uh, <laughs> but I, I love the way that you, you, you sum, summarized everything there. You, you kind of wrapped it up in a nice, neat little bow. And I, I tell you, I mean, there's just so many, there's so daggone much that goes into this. It makes me like really want to go back to our interview that we did the last time you were on the show, where we were talking about a simple topic, like the fact that the Burger King low emissions Whopper is not in fact low carbon emission at all. And mm -hmm. it's just all like crazy science. And that seemed very cut and straightforward to me. And uh, this one is certainly anything but, but I certainly do appreciate you being here to break it down uh, as best as you possibly can and, and giving us so much to think about. I mean, this is just a, a heck of a job that, that you all did with this paper. So my hat is truly off to you. Thanks, Chuck. Great to and talk with you. The pleasure is all mine, Dr. Heller. And if you would like to uh, take a look at this paper for yourself, we've gone ahead and we have included a link to it in the show description or in the episode notes. So go ahead and click on that. And Dr. Heller, I appreciate you being here one more time, my friend. We'll talk to you again soon. Looking forward to it, Chuck. 
how is your diet stacking up? Are you on board with the idea of eating a more regionalized menu? That's a lot to think about after hearing about Dr. Heller's study. And I just want to reiterate what it was that he was saying on the program today. Listen especially carefully if your favorite foods were maybe among those that tend to use more water than others. This is a quote from a press release that was sent out about the study. And in this press release, Dr. Heller said, quote, Budgeting the water scarcity footprint of our diet does not mean that we need to eliminate the costly foods completely, but it probably means that we need to consume them sparingly. And if you click on that study, you can find a link to it in the episode notes. If you click on that link, you can see those rankings and you can develop your own budget and become more mindful while still enjoying your favorites from time to time. Before I tell you about our next Earth Day show, I want to once again say thank you to Kinder Beauty for so generously sponsoring today's episode. Founders Daniela Monet and Ivana Lynch created this beauty subscription box to offer products that are kind to your skin, kind to the planet, and have never been tested on animals. We love that Daniela and Ivana help support the Physicians Committee's work with every box that is shipped out. And you can learn all about this company and its beauty boxes at kinderbeauty.com. And you can find a link to that website in the episode notes. Now, coming up on the next episode, I will be joined by Dr. Neil Barnard, and we will be shifting our focus back from water scarcity to carbon footprints. That is where we will be doing a head-to-head comparison of how plant-based diets and omnivorous diets, the standard American diet, how they stack up in terms of the impact that they have on the environment. And while some plant foods were on par with meat in terms of water usage, there is a clear-cut winner in the carbon footprint arena, and it is not close. So on the next show, we will be crowning a champion and going over those statistics as we continue to celebrate Earth Day. And if you are interested in that episode and you like today's show and you haven't already done so, please go ahead and subscribe to The Exam Room by the Physicians Committee on Apple Podcast or Spotify, wherever shows are available. And when you subscribe, please also leave a five-star rating. And in the meantime, you can check out the Physicians Committee's first ever climate summit. Make that your primer for the interview coming up with Dr. Barnard. And you can find a link to that in the episode notes as well. But for today, that, my friend, is going to do it. I want to say thank you one more time to Dr. Martin Heller for dropping a lot of knowledge with us here today and helping to raise our environmental health IQs. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember... As always, keep it plant-based.